taking our series that we've been in for the month of July called Misquoted. All month we've been looking at different verses throughout Scripture that we often unknowingly take out of context and in doing so really diminish what God is actually trying to teach and show us in that passage. This morning, we're going to be looking at a verse in Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 18, the title for today's message is Loving Correction. Loving Correction. If you've ever been a part of a Bible study or a prayer group or any type of church function that was not very well attended, then you've probably heard this phrase. I I know that our numbers are low here, but where two or three are gathered, God is in the midst. This phrase comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, and it's often used to give legitimacy to a small gathering of believers. It's a reassuring phrase for us that even though there might only be a few people that are present, that God is still with us. But such an interpretation of that text is wrong for two different reasons. The first reason is that when we say that God is only present when there's at least two or three of us, what are we unintentionally implying when we are alone? When we're in our own devotion in Bible study or when we pray alone when Jesus prayed alone to the Father, did God not hear him? When we study passages of Scripture by ourselves, is God not with us? Certainly, I doubt that anybody here believes that. But again, that's just the, the result, the, the unintentional implication that comes from that um, interpretation of Matthew 18:20. You know, granted, twisting it out of context in that sense is not nefarious. It's not like a terrible thing because, you know, the thing is that it's still true. Yes, when two or three are gathered, God is in the midst of us. So by saying that, it's not like you're teaching some type of heretical, heretical doctrine, but he's just as much with one as he is with two or three as he is with 1,000 or 5,000. And then the second thing that we find using this verse to pertain to worship gatherings is that once again, as I hope we've seen these last couple of weeks, is that by taking this text from the context of the passage that it's in, we rob ourselves of what God is really trying to teach us in that text. And by removing it from the context of Matthew 18, we miss a magnificent promise that that Jesus gives to us, which we will see this morning. I just want to warn you this morning before I begin preaching that the text which we are going to be studying this morning is a text that can easily make us uncomfortable. It's a text that is rarely, if ever, taught or applied in churches. However, I truly believe that it is a text that is vital to the overall health 
of a congregation. And you know, the thing is, if we strive and we want to be a healthy church, we can't avoid hard texts. You know, the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and that it's good for our instruction. It's good to, to help us in godliness. And this text is no different. In Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20, we find Jesus' instructions on how to deal with a sinning brother. Matthew 18 is one of two major texts in the Bible alongside 1 Corinthians 5, which deals with what we call church discipline. And I know that even as I say that word church discipline, that probably some shudder at the mere idea of it. And usually it's because we don't have or we haven't been taught a true biblical understanding, if anything at all, about how to handle sin in the church. Baptist theologian John L. Dagg said that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Listen, it is church discipline that holds a church together. Church discipline is the process of correcting sinful behavior among members of a local church body to protect the church, restoring the sinner to a right walk with God, and renewing fellowship among church members. Listen, if we desire to be a healthy and a thriving church, then we would do well to heed the words of Christ in Matthew 18. Because what happens after your brother sins, which is going to happen. Churches are made up of sinners, and sinners sin. So what happens after that happens? The way that we approach and handle that will determine if, a, if our church is a place of peace and harmony or a place of tension and discord. In Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 15 with me. I'm going to read through verse 20. Verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass or sin against thee, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen and a publican or a tax collector. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Let's, Heavenly Father, I again thank you for this morning. I thank you for everybody that you have brought here, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we study this text that you would give me boldness, Lord, um, to proclaim your word, um, that we would be open to correction, that we would be open to instruction. Lord, that you would use this text and this message to help transform and grow and strengthen us, Lord. Lord, that we would take heed to what you say. God, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that Jesus would be big, and that ultimately all this would point sinners 
to him. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. Often, if you have ever studied or looked at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, we, we view it as biblical conflict resolution. But I believe that in studying this, this text, that it's, it's much deeper than just conflict resolution. I believe that when we study this text and we look at what Jesus is saying, we see that God's priority for the church is holiness and purity and the way that he achieves it is through one another. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking to believers in a church, a people that have been saved and have put their faith and trust in Christ and have willingly joined a congregation. You know, the first thing about this text is that it reminds us of the importance of understanding what church membership truly is. Listen, when you join a church, when you willingly join into the fellowship of believers, what you are saying is, I am connecting myself to a group of like-minded believers so that I can grow as a Christian, so that I can mature in my walk with Christ. As church members, we become accountable to one another. We are to stir up one another in love and good works. We are to exhort one another. We should be encouraging one another to live holy and pure lives that are pleasing to God. If you look at verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you. You know, before we dive deeper, I just, I want to mention that I, I don't want us to get stuck on those two words against you. In Galatians 6.1, we are given the following admonition. Paul says, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person. So listen, in this text, whether Jesus is referring to a brother that is caught in sin generally or a brother who has personally sinned against you, you know, as we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that there is a general principle that we are able to apply to this text, and that is that followers of Christ should address sin in one another's lives. So this morning, we're going to look at the process, the promise, and the purpose of church discipline, or better yet, of loving correction. In verses 15 through 17 of our text, Jesus gives us a step-by-step process by which to deal with a sinning brother. Listen, this, this text is extremely practical. It's extremely simple. That's a good thing because we don't have to come to this text and walk away like, you know, what, what is Jesus trying to teach me here? But rather, we can plainly read it and see exactly what our instructions are as followers of Christ. So the first step that we find in verse 15 is that if there is sin in the life of another believer that you are aware of and concerned about, First, have a private conversation with the offender. So step one is to confront privately. Let's understand, too, that the topic at hand is sin. It's not irritation. It's not annoyance. It's not that they've hurt my feelings or they've rubbed me the wrong way. 
But rather what Jesus is saying is that if your brother or your sister is violating by his actions something that the word of God says is wrong and does not do anything about it, that we are to go to him and tell him his fault between the two of us. The type of sin in Matthew 18 that Jesus is pointing to is is outward, significant, unrepentant sin. Understand also Jesus is not instructing us to be petty, holier than thou, fruit inspectors. You know, we're not to look at, uh, we're not to look at Gabby has raised her voice at Justin and say, Gabby, you know, you shouldn't be raising your voice at Justin. You know, it's not every little petty thing that happens, but rather if there is something that's significant, something that's outward, maybe, maybe Gabby is, every day you see her, she's yelling at Justin. And it's like, Gabby, you know, the Bible says this. So, so we need to understand that aspect of it, that we're not supposed to be petty and fruit inspectors of everybody's life looking for where they have missed the mark. But rather, we are to be aware when a brother or sister in Christ is engaging in sin that would not be becoming of a Holy Spirit indwelt Christian. You know, as we exegete and we read between the lines on this text, we also see that our first response to someone sinning is not to gossip. It's not to harbor bitterness in our heart because of the sin that they have, but rather the first thing that we are to do is to seek reconciliation and repentance. If you are offended by sin in your brother's life, listen, you have no time to sulk. You have no time to gossip. You have no time to withdraw. You have no time to recruit allies, but rather Jesus says, go. And when you go... Go to him with a soft, or, or her, with a soft temperament. You know, Romans 12, 18 tells us to live peaceably with all men. You know, you want to go with a gracious and merciful and loving attitude, the same exact way that you would want somebody to come to you if they saw a fault in your life. So the Bible says we go and we tell them their fault. The phrase, tell him his fault, is actually one word in the original language. And this, this one word, elancho, means to expose, reprove, to admonish someone strongly. Listen, the, the whole purpose of this process is not to shame, it's not to guilt, it's not to embarrass someone, but rather it's to lovingly expose and show your brother that Jesus is greater than any sin that you are tempted or embattled with. Listen, aware of our vulnerability, we go to the offender and say, the scripture says that what you are doing is wrong. And we point them to the scripture. We point them to what God's word says. And Jesus says that in lovingly reproving and rebuking your brother, if he hears or if he listens to you and he repents of that sin, that you have gained your brother. You've effectively removed the speck from his eye. James tells us in chapter 5 that if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
when we hear the word church discipline, often we think of the end result. We think of the last step. We think of the big scary word, excommunication, and being disfellowshipped from the church. But, but the thing I want you to understand is that this, this whole entire process, from step one all the way to if you sadly make it to the very end, is all church discipline. So this, this conversation that I have at the beginning where I notice something that my brother is doing, when I go to him and I say, listen, the Bible says this, that, that's part of church discipline. We make it to be this, this scary, embarrassing thing when that's not what Jesus intended for us to do at all. Most often, church discipline is going to occur informally and privately. You know, I, I truly believe that when we biblically understand and we biblically practice church discipline, that nine times out of ten, you will never go past that first step. That nine times out of ten, when you have a conversation with a brother in Christ who is regenerate, who is born again and wants to live a life that glorifies God, when you show them they're wrong, that nine times out of ten, they are going to repent and they are going to turn back to the Lord. The vast majority of church discipline in a church should happen in the ordinary course of relationship from Monday to Saturday. Listen, this doesn't mean that we run around correcting each other all the time. But what this means is that we want to be a church that is characterized by people who hunger for godliness. So we have Cody. Cody is living in outward, significant, unrepentant sin. I notice that Cody is living in outward, significant, unrepentant sin. I immediately go to Cody. I have a conversation with Cody full of grace and full of mercy, and I show him how the actions and how his lifestyle was contrary to God's word. And as a result, hopefully, Cody has godly sorrow and true repentance. But what happens when I lovingly show Cody why his actions are against God and he ignores me? Well, Jesus tells us that then you go to step two. He says, if your brother refuses to hear you, take with you one or two more. In following this process, this three-step process of church discipline, I, I want us to see Jesus' heart for repentance. I want us to see the grace that he offers and recognize that there is some wisdom that should be used when moving from one stage to the next. In most cases, you're not going to have one conversation with this person and say, well, I tried and he didn't listen, so I guess we got to take it to the church. But rather, as we see the pattern that Jesus gives us, and we, we look at the life of Jesus, and we see the example that he has set for us with patience and with grace, we lovingly pour into the offender. And then with godly wisdom, once you feel as if he's just not going to listen to me, then you move on to the next step. Listen, in this process, you don't want to be brash. You don't want to rush into it. But at the same time, you also don't want to be slow to action. Listen, if somebody clearly shows you that they are overtaken by sin in their life and that there's no repentance, they have no desire to turn away from that, then move on 
to the next step. So in step two, I've been talking with Cody. Cody ignores me. Cody continues to live in sin. So I now go and employ the help of one or two more believers. Listen, remember that up until this point, this has remained a private ordeal. Up until this point, me and Cody are the only ones that even know that I'm having these conversations with him. In step two, Jesus calls back to the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy 19, Moses wrote that one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Again, we see the grace that Jesus extends. Jesus believes in due process. Jesus believes in a fair trial. Listen, Jesus doesn't want mob justice or false, church, false charges to rule the church. So now with two or three witnesses, you do the same thing that you did in step one. You lovingly rebuke. You lovingly reprove. You point to Scripture with the hope of godly sorrow and true repentance from the offender. But then again, what happens when the offender still won't heed the call to repent by two or three and continues in sin? Jesus then tells us that if that is the case, you come to your last line of defense. Your last line of defense is the church as a whole. This ordeal that began private is now brought into the public. In this case, practically lived out, the pastor or a leader will call a private church meeting and will publicly announce to the church body the pattern of sin which Cody has fallen into. Listen, but at this point in the step, as the pastor calls upon the entire congregation, what he is doing is he is calling upon them all as a family to pray for and to collectively pour into Cody with the hope that, listen, if one or two can, if, if, if three can't get him to turn back to the Lord, maybe when he sees that this whole family cares about him, this whole family loves him, that my whole entire church wants me to be living for the Lord, maybe at that point Cody will hopefully repent of his sin and turn back. But Jesus then says if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. Listen, this is what we know in the life of the church as excommunication. Excommunication, you take that word ex and commune, it's removing from the communion of the church. It's removing from membership. When you excommunicate Cody from, from the church for living a lifestyle of sin that he's unwilling to repent of, you're not telling Cody he's not welcome at church anymore. You're saying that, that we have to remove you from our membership. We have to remove you from our community because what you are saying is I no longer can in good conscience affirm your public profession of faith. Again, remember what church membership is. We bring people into the body based upon their public profession of faith and baptism. Church membership is not a social club, but rather it's a regenerated, it's a born-again body of believers who are accountable to one another in their Christian walk. So by removing a person from membership and participation in the Lord's Supper, it is a way of declaring that the church is no longer willing to affirm 
publicly that someone is a true Christian. Listen, we are not the ultimate judge. But when you have patiently and graciously rebuked and reproved and pointed someone towards scripture that is an outward significant sin, and that person shows no signs of repentance, as Christians, we can no longer in good conscience say that Christ is Lord of Cody's life. Because as we look at scripture, we see that when you are born again, that all things are made new. Doesn't mean we're perfect, we continue to mess up, we continue to sin, but there should be this attitude and this lifestyle of repentance that now goes towards my sin. You know, this step may sound unloving, this step may sound embarrassing, but we need to feel the tone behind what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. You know, I'm sure we're tempted to think, well, why do we need to tell a whole group about Cody's sin? But in reality, what the entire church is saying together is, Cody, we love you, and because we love you, we want you to come back to Christ. Listen, God loves us so much that when we are caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to demonstrate his love and mercy. Then as you move on from verse 17 to verse 18, we see that this process that Jesus gives us then leads to a promise. In verse 18 through 20, look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two or three or that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Listen, verses 18 through 20 are a promise that God will honor a church that practices biblical discipline. Before you dismiss church discipline as unloving, Understand that not only does Jesus command it, this is Christ that's instructing us to do this, but also the Father endorses it. He affirms it. In verse 18, where you see Jesus is speaking of binding and loosing, what Jesus was doing was emphasizing the church's authority to shut the door to the community of faith in the face of a sinning brother who is unrepentant. And just as the church has the ultimate authority to shut that door, the church also has the authority to open it again, to bind it or to loose it if repentance comes about. Listen, in in other words, what, what verse 18 is saying is this. Verse 18 is saying that the church discipline decisions the church makes, when it follows Jesus's guidelines carefully and maintains a right attitude, or in keeping with what already has been decided by God in heaven. One pastor said that never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with her Lord than when dealing with sin to maintain purity. Knowing that the task is difficult, knowing that it's not automatic, that it's not a pleasant dealing, Jesus assures 
us that we do not act alone. He says the Father is with us as we make righteous judgments, verse 18. He says that the Father hears our agonized prayers for reconciliation, verse 19. And then he says that the ascended Christ will be present as we take these steps, verse 20. Listen, the promise given in verse 20 is not that Jesus promises to meet with small gatherings of believers, but it's a promise that as we follow his command of biblically and righteously dealing with sin, that he will grant us boldness and comfort as we deal with a, a painful and an extremely difficult situation. This is a promise to the church to proclaim wisdom and act with authority in the restoration process towards the sinning person. In other words, when this process is pursued as Christ has outlined for us, he promises his presence and his power. So the act of church discipline is not something that is pleasant. It's not something that it's fun. It's not something that we should ever delight in. But if we're going to be a church that is serious about following Christ, it's something that we must practice. So we've seen the process, we've seen the promise, and quickly, I just, I just want to close with giving you the purpose. The purpose of discipline within the church is personal holiness, congregational purity, and gospel restoration. Listen, in all of these, personal holiness Congregational purity and gospel restoration all ultimately lead to the glory of God. Church discipline grows a church in righteousness and peace. Loving church discipline yields life. It yields health, holiness, and growth. Listen, for Christians, church discipline is a part of the sanctification process. It's a part of making us and conforming us into the image of Christ, of helping us to live lives that are Christ-like and godly. Listen, not only should we urge our brothers and sisters to live holy lives, but we should long to have people around us that will do the same in our lives. Listen, when Richard sees me being short with my wife or when Matthew sees me maybe getting angry with my son, if Cheryl knows about a lie that maybe I'm called in, listen, I, I should be open to and I should want them to confront me. Why? Because I want to honor Christ. Because as a Christian that has been bought and be, been redeemed, I want to live a life that glorifies him. And it's the responsibility of my brothers and sisters to hold me accountable and to pinpoint sin in my life, to help me maybe see these blind spots in these areas where I don't even recognize and realize that what I'm doing is against God's word. Listen, we should be a church that has the attitude, if you wander from the Lord, I'm coming for you. And if I wander from the Lord, I want you to come for me. This is the kind of care that Jesus calls us to as a congregation. Listen, the first purpose of church discipline is that we may be godly and Christ-like in our lives. And then the second purpose of church discipline is for the purity of the congregation. 
J. Carl Laney writes about church discipline. He says the church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. He says as an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanisms, the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. He says this illness is due, at least in part, to a neglect of church discipline. Listen, the church should take outward, significant, unrepentant sin seriously for the sake of evangelism and witness. So if the church look just like the world, why would anybody want to join it? Listen, the world can do things a whole lot funner and better than we can, but the thing that draws people to church is that there's something different, there's something distinct. This doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that, 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 that there's a power on us and we're striving to be different than those who are outside of our doors. Listen, if the young men are womanizers, the old men are stingy and they're angry and bitter, if the, one woman, the young women are flirts and the... Older ladies are alcoholics. How attractive is our witness to a watching world? How successful will our evangelism be when we say, listen, put your faith and trust in Christ and he'll make your life different when my life looks exactly like theirs. Churches should be distinct in holiness and we should be distinct in our love. Listen, churches should practice church discipline in order to love like Jesus. How did Jesus love us? He pursued us in our sin. He laid down his life for our forgiveness. And he calls us to follow after him. How then are we as a church to love each other? We pursue each other in our sins. We point to his sacrifice for forgiveness, and then we help each other to follow after him. And as a result, people will know that we are his disciples. As a result, the church will be attractional. Listen, the last thing I want us to know is that the purpose of church discipline is gospel restoration. If you get anything, I want you to get this. The goal of church discipline is not excommunication. The goal of church discipline is reconciliation. Listen, the ultimate goal of holding one another accountable is that we would be right with one another and that we would be right with God. The goal is to persuade the sinner to repent Listen, this whole entire process throughout the the whole purpose of this process is restoration. It's not embarrassment. It's not to make somebody feel like, like, like they're less than us, but it's to point them back to Christ. That the sinner would turn from his wicked ways and go back to the Lord. Listen, Jesus says to treat the unrepentant sinner as the heathen and the tax collector. Some interpret that to mean that we should shun and avoid and have nothing to do with the unrepentant sinner. But I believe what Jesus is trying to more so teach us is that we treat them as unbelievers. 
And how did Jesus view unbelievers? How did Jesus treat heathens? How did Jesus treat tax collectors? He loved them. He died for them. He pointed them to a truer and better way. He pointed them to himself. He told them of their need for a savior. He told them of his offer for forgiveness, for his free gift of salvation. Listen, when someone shows us that they aren't a child of God, we don't shun them and send them away, but rather we entreat them, come and die, taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen, we give the glorious good news of the gospel. We pray for their souls. We share with them that Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That satisfaction comes through Christ alone. That the sin that they are ensnared with, the sin which they are caught in, will one day lead them to a place of destitution. It will lead them to a place of hopelessness. And that Jesus offers them a way of escape. Restoration is the goal. Listen, when a sinner shows true repentance, when a sinner shows godly sorrow, it's our job to restore them. Listen, it's our job to receive them. It's our job to love on them. It's our job to celebrate with them. As believers, we should be importing grace. We should be giving that grace into one another's lives, pointing each other towards Christ and holiness. Listen, Christ is better than anything that the world can offer. There's no sin that God cannot forgive. John 1.29 tells us that Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Forgiveness is available to all who call upon his name. Listen, I entreat you this morning, if you have never before put your faith and your trust in Christ alone and called upon him for forgiveness and eternal life, that today would be the day, that today would be the moment of salvation. He's calling out to you. He's waiting on you with open arms to take you, to embrace you, to welcome you into his family. And then those of us here this morning that are a part of the church, let's make a decision to hold one another accountable. Because the most loving thing we can do is continue to point each other towards Christ until he returns. Every head bow and eyes close. If you're here this morning and you say, I don't know Christ as... Savior, but I would like to. If you say that's me or I have questions about what you just said, would you just slip your hand up, every head bow, eyes closed. I'm not going to embarrass you. I want to pray with you. I want to be a help to you. If that's you this morning, you say, I don't know Christ as Savior, but I would like to know. Just slip your hand up. All right, let us pray. Dear Lord, I again thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that your word would not return void, that you would challenge and convict us, Lord, that we would be a people that point each other towards you, that we would be a people that long to live holy and pure lives, Lord, a people that also remember that when we do mess up and we do fail, that your mercies are new every single morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that <clears throat> be with us as we close, that the rest of this message or worship time would honor and glorify you. We love you. Thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen.
All right. <clears throat> At this time, we are going to, <clears throat> goodness, we're going to sing.